Hello and welcome to the Plants and Pipettes podcast and because we had some serious complaints last time that we don't talk enough about plants and talk too much about other things, we're going to go jump straight into the plant stuff today. So today I'm going to be talking about a research article that I have recently read from PNAS about plants. Plants, 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 plants. <laughs> yeah. Um, Yarm, how's your life going? Tell us in detail, tell us about the day you were born, maybe even conceived, and we'll work our way up from there. I mean, my, my stories that I have to tell mostly, as you can probably hear, um, I'm just, I just chose the sick life for as my forever life. Um, mm-hmm. I'm catching all of the bugs um, from, from the Kita, and so now, I don't know. From the kindergarten. For, I mean, you chose the life of having a small child who then licks things and brings it back into the nest. Yeah, I don't know for how many... Like the how many th- times that is? Like, I don't know how to phrase that properly. In the last six weeks, that I'm just completely stuffed up and sad and tired. Um, but yeah, I think we should just all assume you'll be sick for the next two years, and then you can just you know maybe tell us when you're not sick from now on. This will yeah. Make I mean, you will easy. hopefully be able to hear it from my voice, then when it doesn't sound um, mm-hmm. inc- incredibly terrible Sexy or and posh. Nasally. Yeah. Is it posh? Do you think that's posh? Pretentious, maybe. Ah. It's like stuck up nose. Yeah. Apart from that, there's not not too much. Like, I just, the only fun thing that I had um, as a sort of follow-up was, like, last time we talked, I said that we were going to play golf, and now I have been playing golf, and it was as I expected. This segues nicely from the posh and stuck up thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, You're a rich man now who plays golf. No, like, I suck at it. Um, I don't enjoy it. Um, you we, do enjoy it? No, I don't, no. Oh, why not? It's, I mean, we were just at the driving range, right? We didn't do the fun bit of like walking through nature and then occasionally hitting a ball and then walking a little bit, trying to find it again and then walking some more. We didn't do this. Instead, we like were at the driving range. Each of us, we were like three guys. Each of us had like 300 balls that we just had to hit downrange. And we did that. And it took a good evening. But did you just get bored of hitting the balls at some point? Is that yeah. the problem? Okay. Yeah. You're just like, how many more have I got? Yeah, it's like like 10 or 20 balls is fun. 300 is just a chore. I, um, guess, <laughs> I guess you're supposed to be aiming for something. Are you not... I mean, there, there are supposed to be targets, hitting the balls but, to a place? Yeah, okay. But if you have no idea what you're doing, like hitting the target is like completely random. So sometimes you would hit the target and be like, yay, and then we'll try to do it again. And then you just like whack the bat the club into the ground and then the beauty of this is then you have to like extend your arms and everything and do the movement from your back so every time you hit the ground like you get just this shock wave straight up in your in your back so the next day i had like a sore back and this <laughs> a sore arm from like a completely like it's, it's like a repetitive movement that i did like literally 300 times in one night yeah. that i haven't done before so but it is it is all sort of it's one of those questions is golf a sport and now we know that it is because you can get spot injuries from it yeah. so that's that's that problem solved at least yeah anyway like so many guys our age all like they had all gray clothes on like either the pants were gray or the top was gray so and none of us had grays don't we wear white is or is that tennis at the driving range everybody has to wear one item of gray clothing okay um and they were all very serious about it. They came there with like their gear and like their little, like it's actually quite cute. Like they have these bags and they have like these foldable legs and they can like, they carry them around. They're quite heavy because it's full of metal. And then they like put them up, put up the legs and then they stand there and then they say like, oh, I think this requires a seven iron. And then they take something and label did seven. You, did you have different numbers of irons? Did yeah, you, or we, did you just have like one stick? 
No, we ha we we rented like each of us rented a different number so we could try, but we all played the same one number. I don't know which one we took. <laughs> we had like I think seven, eight, and nine because the side guy mm -hmm. said this is like beginner numbers. How long do you think um you were there for doing these one hundred fours? Two hours, two and a half hours or something. Then we had to leave for a rum tasting. Um, I mean, it's good because it's only 999,000 more hours. How was it? 100,000 hours or 10,000 hours you have to do to get proficient at something? Yeah, so you've, I've, you've really knocked that number down a few <laughs> hours. Yeah, it, I, I really did. Um, it's, yeah, I won't be doing that again, I think. I don't, I don't think I will make it to 10,000 hours or like even just 10 hours. Oh, it's... The funnest thing was seeing like this little car driving around that picks up the balls and then you can try to hit the car like if you have skill. We didn't have skill, but we that's pretended just mean. that we that, that The problem for that is that feels to me like an Adam Sandler movie and that just makes me uncomfortable. Yeah, but the car had like like grates and stuff in front of the windows and so on. So like the, the person inside could not be hurt. So I mean... But no, none yeah. of us, I think nobody hit it. Um, I, think my, I think my sport's going to be synchronized swimming, I've decided. Oh, I've I, seen some stuff from the Olympics that was insane. Like, oh, it was incredible, wasn't it? That was one of the few things I watched at the Olympics. Um, I, I, always, I was always like looking, like not looking down on like, that would mean I would have some sort of like athletic qualification that allows me to look down on another sport, but which I don't. Um, but yeah, I always thought it's kind of silly to like splash around in the water and do like little formations. But then I saw what they're actually doing and it's insane. It's so insane. I have no idea how they managed to do this. Like, there's so there's sort of the thing with the swimming where you have certain moves you have to do and one of the moves that you have to do is throw one of your swimmers i think what is there seven swimmers in total or nine in total and one of them has to be thrown out of the water and the higher they get out of the water the more points you get basically um and you can't nobody can touch the bottom of the pool when they're doing this and the way they get like lift from a person, throw them out of the water without having anything pushing downwards except for like, you know, their own little egg beater kicks is incredible. And it it made me think of a protein complex inside a cell because they form these interlocking parts where there's these like sort of central people who are the lifters and the thrusters. But then there's people who turn upside down, face down in the water to sort of brace against like the, the people who are holding them up and push inwards to give them stability and like kicking with their legs to keep. And it was just this really sort of modular and yeah, it really made, I was thinking ATP synthase, ATP synthase. I mean, it didn't look like <laughs> ATP synthase, but it, just the way they clicked together and it, it was beautiful and incredible. And I want to do that. That's what I want. <laughs> I mean, it is, it, it looks like a good analogy from like coming together, everybody contributing a small part, achieving something big together. Um, and like dislodging and and then coming back together in a different formation and stuff like that. I mean, this is stuff that proteins do. Maybe they don't do it like in such an aesthetic way, but in a very similar functional way, I, I guess. Yeah, I think the ability to smile throughout it all was yeah. I watched I watched that, and before I mean, we're, we're very late to be doing our Olympics coverage. Before that, I watched some of the athletic ones where we have a ribbon or a ball, and they're uh -huh. just sort of um, dancing across a stage with a ball and that looks very weird and you could really like the the person who was commentating for that did not know what that sport was which was really sad because then the commentator was like mm -hmm. yep they threw the ball in the air oh they caught the ball okay 
Yeah. How, why why is, is the commentator not like proficient in the sport? Like, I think it's just not it's not considered a very important sport. It's not sort of one that there's a lot of people in in England maybe watching it. So they didn't have. I mean, with the with the synchronized swimming, the commentator one of them had done synchronized swimming at that level and could tell you you know why teams would lose points what they needed to do and with all of these things as a routine they have to sort of like hit certain um bits to to get the points they have to you know throw somebody and then they have to do this thing where they twirl downwards in the water they have they have certain um things that they have to do and they have to have like um routine in between that and beauty but there's there's certain bits to get the points and she could explain that but then with the ball they weren't really explaining that so you could see that there was the same thing happening because they had to sort of throw and twirl and different things are different levels of hardness but he just didn't really realize that so it was kind of like okay she twirled mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah okay Russia's won again great <laughs> so lunch <laughs> was very awkward oh yeah I imagine anyway Shall we do the plant science? I can yeah, say what I've been doing with my week, but I think um, we'll just make people angry. <laughs> You're so careful now to like tiptoe around like <laughs> the angry people. Um, yeah, but no. So let's the talk thing about is, plant- <laughs> on Tuesday I went to see Twelfth Night. You guys, Twelfth Night. <laughs> it's a play by Shakespeare, and I went to see it at Shakespeare's Globe. It's not the original Globe because, as we all know, the original Globe it did burn down. Maybe a couple of times. I actually can't remember. I, I did not know that. <laughs> we got um, what is called groundling tickets, which is like the cheap five pound tickets. And it means you have to stand for three hours <laughs> while the play happens. And if you try to sit down, somebody comes and points at you <laughs> and sends you back to the yard. They're like, no, 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 peasant. <laughs> you did not pay for sitting. <laughs> back to the yard. And then you have to go back to the yard. Like literally, like really, like they sent you out of the theater if you sit down? No, you can you can leave the theatre, but you're not allowed to sit down in the theatre if you've only paid to stand. So one person next to me, I saw she tried to sit, and the person said, "Hey, are you feeling okay?" And she's like, "Yeah, I'm okay. I'm just tired." She's like, "I'm sorry. <laughs> like, tired is not tired is not an excuse. You got to get up. <laughs> this is. I mean, you can you can leave the theatre, and some people did give up. I think. Um, and <laughs> and you can lean. We got very good at leaning, but you cannot sit down. That's British the tradition is so weird. I mean, it's it's quite fun. It's you know, reminiscent of the olden times. It's an experience. Yeah, I mean, I, no. <laughs> I'm so happy that we progressed culturally from the olden times in so many ways. To having seats. You that know that I, sitting down is actually like ruining your spine and everything, blah, 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 right? Yeah, yeah. But also standing for three hours in a spot is probably also not the most, like, the, the best thing you can do to your joints and your back and everything. Like if you would be running and moving for three hours, yeah, but just standing, probably just as bad as sitting. I would say like that's the new, that's the new cancer. That's what Tim Apple said, right? Sitting is a new cancer. <laughs> what are you talking about? It's just like when they introduced the watch um, and they had needed to have a reason what it can do. Like it can remind you to stand up and during a presentation it was something like, look, um, sitting is the new cancer. It's so bad for you. So our watch helps you to stand up because you forget yourselves and then you won't get to like your your health will will benefit from this. But anyway, I digress too far. Um, do we want to talk a little bit about plant science? And I have to say at this point, um, I am in your hands. Um, should I just play the jingle? It's the paper of the week. 
So before I introduce the paper of the week, I just want to mention that it's not exactly about a plant. It's about Chlamydomonas reinhardtii. Lies, which is we're lying again to our fans. That, like, this sorry, is not the fans. algae and pipettes podcast, Tegan. Yeah, if you're, if you're here. I'm pretty sure that they did use pipettes in this paper, at least. So... Okay. We're doing better than we sometimes do. Um, but Chlamydomonas is a single-celled algae, and it's it's pretty much the model organism for single-celled algae. So Arabidopsis or Theocress is the model plant that we all use, and then Chlamydomonas is this little algae that everybody uses. And it looks quite cute. I think it has like a, a Mike Wazowski kind of from Monsters, Inc. kind of vibe about mm. it. It's quite quite a sweet little fellow. Anyway, the the paper is something that was published very recently in The Plant Cell. It came out in September this month in 2021, this year. And it's real-time monitoring of subcellular, so inside the cell, hydrogen peroxide distribution in this algae, Chlamydomonas reinhardii. And it's by Nehemiah and colleagues. Um, and I realize that we, I think we've had some contact with one of the authors. The lead author on this paper is Michael Schroeder. So just as a disclaimer, but I didn't realize that when I was picking the paper. Uh, but I think, I think I've met that person in real life. Yeah, same. Um, but yeah, but disclaimer. No, no, no further ties. Like just like we met them and had some like scientific discussions. <laughs> He's in never the past. even bought me a biscuit or anything, guys. I'm not being paid for this. Um, <laughs> Okay, so the point of this is basically to look at how hydrogen peroxide is being made and spread around in Chlamydomonas reinhardii, this um, single-celled algae. And I want to sort of discuss a little bit about hydrogen peroxide first. So, Yaron, what do you know about hydrogen peroxide? Um, it's... Now I have to think with my tired brain. It's bleach. Um, no, it's not bleach. It's not chlor- chlor- chlorine bleach, that, um, but you can bleach hair with it. I, that's why I'm thinking of bleach. Yeah, it's bleachy. So it has bleach-like properties. Um, and um, it's it's one of the reactive oxygen species that we find in the cell. So it's one of these like small molecules that can be made sometimes as like a genuine side product of something, so often as like an unwanted side product. And it can be damaging. Like as it can bleach hair, it can also destroy proteins and um, be very aggressive on a molecular level and Mm -hmm. mess up things in the cell. Yeah, so basically, as you said, it it sort of comes up as a side product of of various um, processes, including like from photosynthesis, but also from respiration in the mitochondria and a whole lot of other things that are happening in the cell. And it does belong to this sort of bad, scary, reactive species kind of group. But hydrogen peroxide is actually like a bit more stable than some of the other ones. So it's not as likely to run around and bump into other things in the cell and damage them. And because it's not so reactive, it was noticed that it can actually sort of instead run around and be a messenger. So it can be, because it's quite small, it can travel easily from place to place um, and act as you know a signal from bits of the plant to other bits of the plant or in other organisms from bits of the organism to other bits of the organism. Um, so basically, when people found out that it was a messenger, they're like, "This is so exciting! We have to be tracking it. We have to 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 understand how organisms work as a whole. We need to be following the messages that are sent inside the organisms." And they wanted to see how hydrogen peroxide moved around the cell. Mm-hmm. So basically, the first idea came up that we should make some sort of indicator which glows when it interacts with hydrogen peroxide. 
So I think we've talked before on the podcast about the idea of fluorescent proteins. Um, these originally were actually stolen from jellyfish. Um, green fluorescent protein is the most commonly used one. And it's just, yeah, a protein that fluoresces. It's it's really that simple. It, it shows a nice pretty color, often green, can also be yellow or red when you shine the right light on it. Um, and people worked out way back in 2006, um, there was a Nature Methods paper that you could take one of these fluorescent proteins and sort of add some, attach some other things onto it. Mm-hmm. And those other things were designed to react with the hydrogen peroxide. And when the other things reacted, it sort of changed those other things. And it usually, you know, made bonds form. And that led them to sort of twist and change their shape, which in turn, because they were attached to the fluorescent protein, twisted and changed the shape of the fluorescent protein. And by its shape being twisted, it sort of altered the way the fluorescent protein worked. And in this case, quite basically, um, when it was a little bit more twisty, the the type of color that came out of it was a little bit less green and a little bit yellow, or like, you know, it shifted the color. Um, and by having this quite simple process, you could then see how much hydrogen peroxide there was based on how green or how yellow this protein had become. So more hydrogen peroxide comes in and it becomes a little bit more yellow. And then you can compare the amount of greenness to the amount of yellow to see Mm -hmm. hydrogen peroxide, how much there is. And then if you can sort of have an idea of how much there is, you can also see spatially where there's lots of it and where there's less of it. And then you get an idea of, of where it is and also how it moves over time, theoretically. So you can start to track the messenger. Yeah. So this paper was first done in 2006, as I mentioned, and that was done in um, HeLa cells, so these sort of um, human cells, like a cell culture, so it's like a, a broth of human bits floating. <laughs> um, that's how I imagine HeLa. I obviously never worked with... Um, it's a cell culture, you guys. It's like individual um, cells in a nice salty broth. Um, and since then, there have been various generations of these kind of hydrogen peroxide responsive fluorescent proteins, this is usually the case with science. Somebody designs something and then somebody's like, I can do that even better and I can do it in different organisms. Um, so there was like three or four next generation, next generation, next generation of these little fluorescent proteins that responded to hydrogen peroxide. So after a few different improvement iterations, we came up with something which is called let me see if I can even say this, Rho GFP2 TSA2 Delta CR. Um, <laughs> that sounds and I don't think, Yeah, I don't think that's actually important at all. They've basically taken a yeast protein that responds to the hydrogen peroxide and they've done some mutagenesis with that um, to make it like change how sensitive it is. And then they've tagged that onto a GFP. So that's a, a green fluorescent protein. And prior to this paper being published, it, this has been shown to work in yeast. So yeast is pretty much, I would say people tend to go to yeast first. Like that's really the easiest of all the lab rats. We've got, you know, Arabidopsis, Clammy. It, I think it's the easiest like um, that actually has a um, cell mm. core, like a, a nucleus. Um, because then like otherwise it's like I always knew people from E. coli from like the biotech stuff they would go to bacteria that's even simpler oh, that's true yeah E. coli is the, the number one simplest and then yeah. but also like simplicity used- like can be good but can, like when you want to like say like a system that that is supposed to work in the end in a plant or human cell if you test that only in bacteria then 
there's steps in between and yeast is a good step in between to, to see if it works in yeast then there's a good chance it will work in other um, eukaryotes as well so organisms that have nucleus yeah so anyway in yeast the rogafipa 2 tsa2 delta cr or whatever we're going to call it so they found that it was um 20 times more sensitive um to the hydrogen peroxide than the previous generation so like None of these little iPhone launches where there's minor adjustments. This is like a big 20 <laughs> times better than the one before. And not only is it more sensitive, but it also didn't have some of the problems, like some of the little bugs in the previous system. Um, and it also wasn't so affected by differences in pH. And this is really important because different subcompartments of the cell, they have very different pH. So some bits of the cell, like the mitochondria, the chloroplast, you know, you've got these little sacs organelles inside mitochondria chloroplasts endoplasmic reticulum then you've got the cytoplasm or the cytosol you've got the vacuole and some of them can be more acidic and some of them are more basic and you don't want that you already get a color change just because of the ph as opposed to because of what you want to be measuring which is the hydrogen peroxide so less sensitive to ph is a good thing so that had already happened and the aim of this paper was basically to get that thing that's developed in yeast and move it into plants but we're starting with the simple thing of the single-celled algae um, and I do say simple but Chlamydomonas has some problems itself and that is that when you try to express foreign genes in Chlamydomonas oh, yeah. Chlamydomonas doesn't really tend to like that um, it's really good at just genetically shutting down things that you try and put into the genome we, we I don't think we completely understand why it's so good at it. Yeah. Um, it looks like it involves epigenetic silencing. It basically just like hushes that section that you put in. It doesn't really destroy it. It just like puts it on mute. Um, yeah, and it puts it on mute in a, in a way that you can't easily track it. Like like sometimes plants or like organisms, mm. when you put something in there, they mutate it and then you sequence the section and then you realize, oh, there's actually like a point mutation or they took like an entire chunk out of the gene because it was like a stress factor for them. And then through like random, like during growth um, and random events, it suddenly became like a selection advantage for the organism to have a broken part there and that's how they keep them but in chlamydomonas yeah like you don't see that like you sequence the gene and it looks fine but then you look at the product of the gene and it's not there um and yeah so it's i think the current working hypothesis in the field is that it's like epigenetic changes so changes that don't affect directly the genetic code but sort of the backbone the stuff around it and makes it harder to read essentially like I don't know if it would be a paper. It's not like changing the letters in the book, but maybe like writing with like a dark pen over it that you can't really read the the individual letters. The letters are still there, you, but it just yeah. makes it harder to read them. I would I would use like they they put a disguise on the DNA. They put something on top of the DNA, like a mask over it so that the it can't be read properly. It's sort of hidden, but maybe that's a bit stupid. Yeah, like I, the, I, the modifications. Be, I imagine it being spiky because, I mean, it's literally adding like these little short molecules to the backbone of it. And I imagine like like a, a spine from a, from a body and suddenly it gets like spikier. And so the enzymes that want to read it, they don't like the spikiness of it. And it's ov absolutely oversimplified. I mean, some <laughs> like some epigenetic changes can like increase the um, um to, to read out the expression of the gene so spikiness is not always bad but that's how i imagine it i imagine like it makes dna all spiky and then enzymes no likey yeah um so 
because the spiky makes enzymes no likey. Um, yeah, expressing things from chlamydomonas has actually been a big pain for people trying to put fun things into the genome of chlamydomonas. <laughs> um, and one solution that has been sort of developed is a different strain of chlamydomonas which has a mutation which somehow prevents the chlamydomonas from putting the spikies that enzymes no likey onto the genes um, and this strain is called uvm4 and uh, this basically uvm4 is the way using uvm4 as opposed to like a wild type of normal chlamydomonas is the way you can prevent the chlamydomonas from just like noping whatever you put in and <laughs> just refusing to express um, whatever you put in. And the the authors of this at some stage did use that line. So they, yeah, they had the problem with the nope card being played by Clammy and then they went around it by using this, this strain, which is deficient in the spiky no likey thing. <laughs> uh, they also... They also tried using different promoters. So they wanted to track um, hydrogen peroxide, but they wanted to track it in all of the different compartments of the chlamydomonas. Okay, so they managed to get a, a, a sensor into the cytoplasm, the nucleus, the mitochondrial matrix, so sort of inside the mitochondria, inside the chloroplast, and then inside the, the sacs of the chloroplast, the thylakoid lumen, and inside the endoplasmic reticulum. Um, so they were trying all of these different bits inside the the chlamydomonas cell and they they ultimately got the sensor to work in all of them except for the endoplasmic reticulum and that's basically because the hydrogen peroxide to make this signal it has to do have a reaction and the conditions of the endoplasmic reticulum are such that the sensor basically is always on. It's always <laughs> like it's fully oxidized always. So the the, the um, hydrogen peroxide can't then come over and do the oxidase because the ER is already yeah. in these like always on conditions. So what I think was kind of cool about the experiment is that they, they use something called a MoClo kit, which is this strategy where you have very modular way of cloning things. So when you want to put a, a gene into um, a genome, you don't just need the gene, you also need things upstream and downstream. So like promoters, something that turns the gene on and off, um, bits at the end that sort of help stabilize. You often need to put other genes in there to help, you know, you get your gene into the organism or select for the fact that the gene's in the organism. And you need like lots of different things. And you also, you want to try different types of promoters. So, you know, the promoter turns the gene on, but a different promoter can turn it on to different levels um, and that can vary a lot depending on conditions. So the authors did try like different promoters and they also tried different targeting peptides and the targeting peptides are the bit that you put before the gene to actually tell the protein once it's made where to go. Um, yeah. So everything's been made from the nucleus, from that genome, but then it gets it gets made in the cytoplasm and you have to then say, okay, protein, now that you're made, go hang out in the mitochondrial matrix or go hang out in the um, chloroplast. So they use this kind of modular system that allows you to easily just like click in different parts. So you already have the promoters and you already have the um, targeting peptides and you should have like click your gene in. Um, and this is sort of a, a cool, suave, easy way to do cloning, I think. Yeah. I wish I would have had that like back in, back in the day um, because we didn't have like... 
such an easy modular system we would like do it the old-fashioned way and that involves like lots and lots of individual steps and it's hard like you were always happy when somebody else had already constructed a large part of what you needed because then you Mm -hmm. could sort of cut it out from their experiment and paste it into your experiment and then you had already like the right targeting and the right promoters and all of this stuff um because if you didn't have that then it was like like in 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 manual it's like a week worth of cloning work in reality it's sometimes like six months where you just spend trying to get like all of the right things together and stay together and not fall apart yeah anyway (laughs) i was just thinking about cloning i i really hated cloning i don't have also that spatial understanding so you know when you're cloning you're not visualizing something as it is, as far as like the letters of the code are, you have to do that on the computer and then you sequence and you have to try and match what you've sequenced to the computer. Like, I just yeah, found that it's, so it's frustrating. A, it like, has my like brain. Multiple levels of abstraction. Like, in the end, you're in, in the lab mixing some liquids and then you're like <laughs> doing some experiment where then see your cells growing or not growing. And depending on that simple readout, you have to then make conclusions on what happened in your construct that you made. And I also like, I found it so hard to wrap my right head around this. But um, did back, not enjoy. back to the paper, what did they find then with the H2O2, with the uh, hydrogen um, peroxide? So basically, the, the main finding was that they could successfully make these sensors in all of the different compartments. This is sort of the start place from which we can then do experiments to see what's happening. They did do some basic experiments. So they shone really high light intensities um, to see if that would make the clammy make more hydrogen peroxide. And it did. It specifically made more hydrogen peroxide within the chloroplast, which is kind of what we expect. Like the the photosynthetic machinery is doing, you know, getting all of this highlight that's coming in and then um, making this hydrogen peroxide as a byproduct. And they also found that there was some rise in the cytosol as well, which suggested that there might have been some sort of leakage um, or weak accumulation of hydrogen peroxide when that happened from... um, maybe leaking from the chloroplast or somehow accumulating in the cytosol, but that didn't happen in the mitochondria and it didn't happen mm-hmm. in um, the nucleus. So I think, yeah, it's, it's diffusion from the chloroplast is what they said. And then they also did some things with some high temperature, so 40 degrees, normally chlamydomonas like growing around like 20, 25 degrees. And um, they saw that the cytoplasm and the nucleus had these bursts of hydrogen peroxide under those conditions. So in that case, they didn't really know why... It's quite clear that highlight affects the chloroplast. That makes sense. Um, they weren't really sure why temperature was causing specifically a burst in the hydrogen peroxide in the nucleus and the cytoplasm. But that's kind of the point of the the research. They've got the tools now to see how these bursts are happening. So now they can sort of follow this and do lots of different permutations, a whole lot of different experiments. And it's basically a tool they've developed and they can now use this tool to see how things work within this organism and see it sort of in real time. They can see these bursts of light as the hydrogen peroxide is coursing through this tiny single-celled alga. And especially like in in the whole cell, which is really cool that you can then just like under a fluorescence microscope look at the cell and then do some sort of trigger, be it highlight, be it like a molecule that you put in there or whatever, Um, and then see, I mean, imagine hopefully seeing like a wave of signal moving through the cell right that would be ideal if you could see how like the signal is generated somewhere and then 
understood somewhere else and then learn more about like these signal signaling properties and not just sort of the general stress properties of hydrogen peroxide that we usually think about. No, that's really cool. Like I can't wait to have more papers from this group then or other groups that take this this system now um, and have like a I always like it when you it, when some somebody visualizes individual molecules happening mm. because so often like I mean in the cell Well this goes back to what we're saying it's things are so abstract I mean to actually then be able to sort of see with your own eyes yes you need a microscope but still you're seeing it with your own eyes Yeah the movement of this molecule that you absolutely cannot see it's too tiny to see but by magic you've magnified its signal and Yeah it's really awesome and it's so powerful i find to like draw conclusions or talk about the science when you actually have sort of something that has an image something that really visually tells you the story instead of just i don't know like like a gen uh, even a genetic sequence can be good but sometimes you have just like a very abstract understanding of it or you draw a model and uh, and then you discuss about the model with like some points of evidence that you have but if you if, if you can literally see it happening it's a completely different way of thinking and talking about the science there and that's what i quite like about these methods yeah and it's easier for other people to engage with as well isn't it yeah. like not just for the scientists working on the science but also the broader scientific community and the public yeah yeah so what was the paper maybe you that's called real-time monitoring of subcellular hydrogen peroxide distribution in chlamydomonas reinhardtii and it's by justice neymeyer and it came out in the plant cell in 2021 this is where the fun begins. This is where the fun begins. This is where the fun begins. Yeah, so for my first fact today, um, I found a story on nature um, that's making quite rounds right now because it's also an, an example of something that's just so easy to observe and watch. Um, and this is um, like, at its core, it's like, um, technical engineering science, so not really a topic here, but these uh, engineers, they took inspiration from seeds in nature, as, as specifically from like seeds of trees, um, because they wanted to build a sensor that can float through the air. And one thing that does float through the air is seeds from trees that have like uh, evolved into all kinds of different shapes that are perfect of like slowing down the seed so it stays in the air for longer and then can be carried away by the wind um there's like um many different examples and so they analyzed them uh and they did like some really fancy laser stuff like in the link that that we're putting in the show notes there's a video um with one, i think the head researcher of the group and they're showing some of the experiments and it's like crazy laser stuff coming from like two sides and there's like smoke from the bottom and then there's like a seed capsule turning and then they're measuring all of the currents of of, of the air and they use that then to com um, to uh, calculate computational models of the seed in the air and then make their own optimized version of that and they say i think in the video they say like they beat nature they made something that's better than nature <laughs> um, because they made um, a particle that stays in the air for longer than any known seed in, in the experiments does um, uh, while still then like slowly sinking down it's like it starts to rotate and has like little flaps um, and they don't just want to make this like particle that stays in the air that's like um fun but not that useful but the particle itself like the, the floaty thing 
is a tiny little computer. So it's like an integrated circuit board um, that has like communication chips on there and sensors on there. And the idea is then you can have like a whole bunch of them that you release from up high and then they float with the wind. And then during like the time it takes them to fly around, you can measure something that's in the air, like chemicals that are in the air, particulates that are in the air. Um, and then it suddenly got a little bit terrifying because they also put in the abstract that it can be used for population surveillance. Yeah, they, they talked about like diseases <laughs> and so on. I found that a little bit scary. Um, well, I think disease management is a bit like catch of the day. You know, that's it's not uncommon that papers are going to mention disease. Yeah, I, I, I think so as well. Um, so yeah, I they also say that like a good way for for them for that could be like you you release them and then by nature some of them will settle earlier and some of them will settle later depending on wind conditions but that means you can cover a large area and if you imagine now every tiny sensor produces like a color readout like a chemical sensor that changes color based on the stuff around it um, you could cover a whole field, for example, after a chemical spillage and then have them react and show a color when the chemical is there. Um, and then from the air with like a satellite or with like um, a camera in a plane, you can then visualize the air and see all of these colored dots where the chemical spill is. Um, so something that otherwise would be impossible to to observe, you could observe that with like distributing these tiny sensors in the air. And one thing that I immediately had in mind was like, yeah, but then you're just littering like plastic, like uh, electro chips uh, with like copper in them and plastics in the circuit boards. You're just like littering them in nature to do your experiment. And then you like, they float for like 30 seconds and then they hit the ground and then they're trash. Um, they also thought of that. They're also studying how to make biodegradable chips. I don't know exactly how that works, um, but they make like print them out of a material that will then biodegrade in the soil uh, without like then having to pick up like thousands of these little tiny microsensors because they're really like mm -hmm. they showed some pictures they're really just like a couple of millimeters big um, they're like smaller than the head of the of, of an ant for example they took a picture with an ant um, and yeah I, I just thought it's really cool that it's, it's one of these like bionic stories where they find inspiration in nature and then build like a technical application of something that in nature evolved over over a very long time to be very efficient. Um, the thing I wanted to mention was a, another article that came up in PNAS, and it was by Kamara Leret and Buscompt, and it came out actually in June. And it's about medicinal plants. I don't know if you've seen this one already, Yarm, but it's entitled Language Extinction Triggers the Loss of Unique Medicinal Knowledge. And it's basically the idea that the medicinal knowledge associated with many like local endemic plants is often linked to the languages in those areas, many of which are indigenous languages, and many of these languages themselves are threatened, which means that if we lose the language, we can lose this medicinal knowledge. Um, so it's quite an important discussion. And there's a really beautiful image. I also wanted to flag the paper because it has figure one is a drawing of different plant samples in like it's hand sort of drawn different plant samples within vases. And they have the the name in different languages of what that plant is called, um, linking it to its sort of medicinal properties. I think that's quite cool. And I think I, I also really like there's at one point they have a, a sort of 
phylogeny of languages to represent these this plant-based knowledge that's linked to the languages and i always i always loved this with languages the fact that languages themselves behave very much like organisms they speciate and they can diverge and they can converge again and they can they have this so you can create phylogenies of languages yeah. in the same way you can do that with species so i find that also quite beautiful i i found this this paper interesting from the the drawing the art side of you the the language side of you and and also obviously the science and this yeah. thing about medicinal knowledge of the plants i have uh, something about um a plant called cheatgrass, which I've, in itself I found quite interesting. Um, cheatgrass is a major problem in the in Northern America because it's an invasive species there. Like it originally comes from Europe, it was brought over there, and that's actually like an, a fun story in itself. That um, it's like the, its seeds are very similar to the grains of wheat, and so when um, like scam artists would um, try to scam farmers they would sell them wheat grains and they would cut it with this like um, <coughs> with the cheat grass and I think that's also where it got mm -hmm. its name from and when the plants germinate they look very similar um, to like wheat and cheat grass but then after, when they start to flower and then set seeds you can tell very easily that they're different and so but then by the time that happened the the salesman of the like the, the fake seeds was already gone and so that's how they would scam people uh, in northern america um and that's how they introduced these these seeds plus like through other ways as well like through through trade and travel um but so now these plants are invasive and therefore like people pay attention to them and one of them um, one of the people who paid attention to them is a is a researcher um who like on her evening walks um realized that like there was under some street lights there were like bushes of the the cheat grass but just under the street lights and she wondered is if that's like if that's a coincidence or not and like any good researcher then she um took a class of summer stem um uh, like a, a team of middle school girls who helped to conduct the study as a part of a summer STEM activity um, mm -hmm. and they f then surveyed 54 alleyways in, uh, alleyways in southern Denver where they then looked if the cheat grass is present there at like poles that have lights on them, poles that have no lights on them or open in the field and they found that 75% um, of street lit sites, so poles that have a lamp on top of them, also had cheat grass present there. So it seems mm -hmm. like cheat grass likes to grow under street lamps. And of course, at this point, it's like correlation, but this triggered then this whole research that's happening right now to figure out like, do they actually like, do they get a benefit from the streetlights? Or is it like something else that they can just uh, thrive better um, and the streetlight doesn't have anything to do with it? Um, maybe like the soil has a different structure around this, around a lamp that has like electrical wiring in it compared to, to like a pole that has no electrical wiring or something like that. So you always have to check. But they found when they brought it in the lab uh, or in the, in the greenhouse, um, the plant would grow much faster than any other wild grasses that would... Um, put in the same conditions in the greenhouse. So there seems to be um, some sort of growth benefit of this like cheat grass to artificial light um, that makes it then like 
street lamps better than areas with no street lamps. Um, so it's actually, yeah, quite interesting. It reminded me of the story that you brought um, last time or maybe before about the trees that changed their growth behavior, like their their, mm-hmm. their their yearly rhythm was changed also due to artificial lighting and like light pollution. And this is like another type, like another thing that an, uh, a plant uses artificial lighting that we put up um, as its own growth benefit. Mm. Yeah, some, some plants suffer quite badly if they don't have the right signals to keep their daily rhythms going um and often like it's something like changes in temperature between day and night time but also light signals so yeah maybe the cheatgrass is just better at being okay if it's always awake <laughs> basically yeah yeah it could just be that like it's it's nighttime doesn't have to be as dark and as as long as for other plants to to, to thrive but yeah that's i i've i've liked a lot about this like the the weird introduction story and also like i think it's a really cool experiment um to do in in for a stem camp uh and to to survey like your neighborhood for mm. first of all for an invasive plant but also for an invasive plant that has like weird growth behavior yoram i have an important question for you that i need you to answer yes you know plasmodesmata uh, yeah that are the, the the plugs or like the connection bits between two cells right i hope i get this right that's correct they're cytoplasmic bridges that cross the cell walls to join neighboring cells <laughs> exactly what i wanted to say why do they open and close uh, to let stuff through and to stop stuff from going through sometimes cells want to share and sometimes the cells are like please no sherry maybe for like pathogens that's something i could imagine like if they realize they have like some bacterial fungi can grow into a cell and they can grow go through the plasmodesmata from cell to cell and maybe the plants can sense that and then close down the plasmodesmata to contain the spread of an infection. That's an interesting theory. I have another question for you. So <laughs> the nucleus is the control center of the cell and there's a vacuole in many cells and the vacuole is kind of a storage compartment. And we know that the nucleus can send signals, you know, genetic messages and stuff um, to the vacuole, to the vacuole. Can the vacuole send messages back to the nucleus? Oh yeah, I studied this once at the beginning of my plant science uh, career, like the retrograde signaling is the idea where um, you have signals moving sort of the opposite way, like not outwards from the nucleus, but back to the nucleus to do stuff in mm-hmm. the nucleus. And there's a big debate about that, how you can measure and understand that. So with the vacuole, I would say maybe it's possible. Interesting, interesting. <laughs> I feel like the worst, like the, the, the weirdest kind of job interview right now. Uh, how much would you charge to wash all of the windows of Manhattan? Uh, probably too little. <laughs> yeah, this is the Google, especially one of the Google um, interview questions. Do you know that? Yeah. Like, how I, many balls can you fit inside a submarine or something like that? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I will ask you a final question that is less about balls and more about plants. And that question is going to be, how is the site of cell division determined? Oh, that's also interesting. Um, I know a, a little bit about it because I know like it's sort of at a, if you have a shape that's like a cell that's shaped like a, a rod, then you don't separate it sort of lengthwise, but always across like the shortest distance and then sort of like a belt goes around it and it singes in and then separates the two cells. With plants, I don't know if it's the same there. I think I've read something about like E. coli or something where they just realized like it never 
It's not random. Like there's something that finds like the smallest diameter and then cuts through there and then divides the two, one cell into two. I think you did remarkably well with those questions, given that <laughs> Do I, I am asking... Do you hire me now, Tiki? Am I getting <laughs> yes. paid now? Please. <laughs> yes, I'll pay you to wash all the windows. Um, these questions are actually part of a sort of review that came out in the plant cell, and it's 15 compelling open questions in plant cell biology. So they asked different expert, experts in the field to say what they think is an open question that we still need to answer. So in fairness to Yoram, none of those have yet been answered. I mean, I'm sure there's some series so, on so different none ones. None of them were proven wrong, what I said. So all, all of the things right. could be right. I, <laughs> exactly. I will just assume that. Um, yes, maybe you even provided some additional ideas that the experts themselves had not yet come up with. But that's something that was published in the plant cell. And I think, I think it's cool. I really like when the research community stops and thinks about what's been done and what's still missing and what they particularly want to know if, if they could. Yeah, that makes it even more, more fun now that the, the question then told me that nobody knows the answers. <laughs> you enjoy it more because you can't be wrong. Yeah, yeah, I don't want to be, I don't ever want to be wrong. Um, I have two more quick facts um, that are not particularly related to plants. The first one is the one about the Australian Research Council. And I'm not sure if we actually discussed this. We might have missed it because we had a break. Um, but the Australian Research Council had applications for a very some very important funding. And they made the choice to reject any applications that cited preprints. And this is a huge problem because preprints are so important these days. But also, they just rule those applications ineligible. So it's not like, please go home and edit this. It's like, you're out. And on top of this, there's a limited amount of times that you can apply for certain fellowships. So in some cases, you can only apply two or three times, and then you can't apply again. You've had your chances. So yeah, now they've reversed that decision. They're not going to ban preprints. But from what I can see, they haven't they haven't re-allowed the ones that were already rejected, which means that people who got rejected on this, they might now not be able to apply it again. And some people, this is an article about this in Nature, and some people have said that this, this decision to, to ban this has basically ended their career because, you know, there's this big funding opportunity that they can't get to, and that's yeah. really then limiting. I mean, you have these problems where there's different stages of your careers where you can apply for different funding, and if you miss one of those big funding stages, you're kind of... Yeah, you're out. Yeah. So it's it's very disappointing that it happened. It's good that they reversed it, but it's... Did they make an argument for why they went with such a drastic measure? Because like I can understand like the criticisms about preprints. And I, I, we always also say that like if we are talking about a preprint, you have to take it with a grain of salt because there's no peer review. It's essentially the manuscript that's like one group wrote um, out of their point of view and they uploaded that. So I can see how... Yes despite being very important, how you might not want to build like your entire theory on something that hasn't been peer reviewed. So I can understand that, but that then going so extreme and being like, so you cited a preprint, um, now you're out of the application process. It sounds like something they just wanted to, like they've looked for an easy filter and identified a, the wrong one to just like cut down the number of applicants that they had to look closer at. Well, I think that's. I think there is very strict 
rules about how what you what you have to do to make it eligible for submission. They have very strict guidelines. And yes, then there is a selection that's based on not following those guidelines. I'm not really sure why they would choose. I, yeah, I, again, I can understand the problem with preprints. Um, but to say an out-and-out ban on the... Like, to throw those out as opposed to... You can say the preprints can be there, but we're not going to consider them as valid as a an actual article that's published and has been peer-reviewed. But to completely throw them out is a bit strange. Yeah. And it, it does have this problem, um, especially in the last 18 months when things have been particularly difficult, everything has been slowed down. Um, that makes things quite tricky. It also tends to harm young researchers more because, you know, there's a, there's a really this lag in building your career with publications. And often you have publications that are sort of finished and ready to get submitted, but it'll still be a year or a year and a half until everything's done and published and then you can't get into the funding until it's published so you have this year and a half where nobody's giving you money so that's also a bit awkward i'm not i'm not sure why exactly the choice was made um and now they've they've unmade the choice but it's still a bit of a problem yeah anyway the the final thing i had has has absolutely nothing to do with um plants and is barely related to science if i'm completely honest so those of you who are only here for the plants and the science maybe Skip go away one. There's, there's chapter marks. You can skip this one. You can skip any chapter that you don't like. This is just something I saw in the Nature Briefing, I think, which I, I read a lot. Um, they, it's just the idea that, you know pl what playing possum means? Uh, is that like pretending to be dead? Is yeah. That yeah, it's a thing that opossums, which are the, the American possums, do. They just sort of pretend to be dead. And there's a philosopher who's arguing that that means that some animals have an understanding of death. <laughs> I mean, but, it's an interesting <laughs> point, definitely. Yeah, I mean, it's a bit weird because, like, is, do they have a philosophical understanding of death, though? Or they just... I think some animals don't really like eating carrion, um, so they would not eat something that had been dead for a while. They would want it, like, catch live prey. Yeah. But then the argument is also... The opossum plays dead, but it doesn't mean that it understands death. It means that what eats it understands death. Yeah. All it understands is if it's very still, <laughs> the thing doesn't catch it. Yeah. But the thing that's doing the catching has to be like, that's dead and therefore bad. Yeah. yeah. This is it's the not argument. like the, the opossum like, understands that like, the, the, the finite um, properties of life and how it eventually all will return to dust. And so now it's just mere playing and pretending to no, be in that No, it's probably state. just like, you know, in Jurassic Park where they, they stay really still and the T-Rex can't see them. Yeah, exactly. The opossum is basically doing that, I think. Yeah. Whereas whatever eats an... What is, I don't know what eats an opossum. I've, I've, not, I've not met an opossum. Yeah. I've not I, seen it play dead. Big dogs things from some birds maybe i don't know anyway the philosopher says the concept of death should also be counted among those characteristics to which we humans can no longer resort to convince ourselves of how very special we are <laughs> so big dogs can also <laughs> whatever else can also understand death i thought that was fun Cat fact. And as you might have guessed it, there's it's not really about cats this week. 
I found something about seahorses. Um, what do you know about <laughs> seahorses, Tegan? That aggressive listener who was angry about us not talking about plants enough is definitely angry now. <laughs> yeah. I know that male seahorses are true feminists. Yeah, because they do what like human feminists only aspire to do but never actually can achieve. Um, that is uh, be carrying the brood in a pouch uh, when they're pregnant. So the, the male seahorse opens their pouch, the female deposits their eggs inside the pouch and then the male takes care of the, the, the eggs and then like, um, I guess, fertilizes them in the pouch and then grows them in the pouch. And then they actually go into labor and for like, um, I think multiple hours, they squeeze out baby seahorses um, <laughs> into the water stream where they then, I don't know, it, it, that's where like the caring ends because then they just like float about and hopefully <laughs> are not eaten by predators. Um, I guess they make a lot of them and a lot of them are eaten, I guess. Come out, yeah. <laughs> mm. But the thing with um, pregnancy is uh, that you have to supply the thing that you're growing inside your body or inside the seahorse's body with nutrients and um, maybe more importantly with oxygen and remove carbon dioxide from, from them because they breathe. Wait, they, I'm imagining seahorses have a gills though. Like big yeah. seahorses have gills, right? Yeah, but does the, the brood inside their bodies have uh, to like they are also respirating and they have to have some sort of like get gas exchange from somewhere huh. so they have to get some oxygen from somewhere and they have to get rid of their carbon dioxide and of course it happens through the f the, the, the father in this case um but now researchers have studied but how they actually do this because like you need a specific structure to do this Sorry, I'm very bad at this, but I'm imagining like a fish egg out in the ocean. It's just like a diffusion process yeah. going in and out. Okay, so the problem here is that the eggs are too much inside the seahorse. That there's not enough diffusion. Yeah. Is it? But it's a pouch. It's like just tucking. Yeah, it's kind but of a I pouch imagine system, it's like, or is it more internal than a pouch? It's um, sort of inside the the more um, cave-like than pouch-like. Is that what we're going I th for? I think so. Like I think it's like closed properly because um, it's actually the the belly skin <laughs> of the seahorse that's like enclosing the the pouch. Um, and in humans, we have like this similar problem, and here we have the placenta that supplies the newborn um, with or like the unborn with uh, oxygen and gets rid of carbon dioxide and then also supplies nutrients and um, does other functions as well. And now in the current research, they found that in seahorses, they form a placenta-like structure as well. So they form like, um, like a placenta has lots of blood vessels that help with like the exchange of, of compounds and, and gases. And this is also what happens here. But in this case, it's not like the uterine lining that forms then develops the the placenta as in humans but instead it's like the skin of the belly that develops like lots of these blood vessels um, and uh, creates lots of like invaginations uh, to increase the surface to have more exchange possible for oxygen and carbon dioxide um, and this is how they keep their brood alive and uh, this is just I found it interesting to think about that they have like the not only do they carry the pregnancy the men they also create a placenta um and what i also found interesting in the study that's by the way done by camilla withington um, from the university of sydney um 
that um, in the report they also said that within 24 hours of giving birth, the male's brood pouch has reverted to its pre-pregnancy form. And I think that's like makes everybody who's currently <laughs> pregnant quite jealous um, because that in humans it takes a bit longer than 24 hours to go back to the pre-pregnancy form. But so yeah, male seahorses, they do have placentas. So that's our show for today. Um, I think I will make another tea after this and then some more tea. Uh, if you want to get in contact with us and leave some nice things about our show, things that you like, things that you think um, made your day, you can do so. Um, you can leave a comment on our website, that's plantsandpipettes.com, but you can also reach out to us on social media, on Twitter, that's at plantspipettes. On Instagram and Facebook, that's at Plants and Pipettes. That's where you often can talk to Tegan, although often more on Instagram than on Facebook. Uh, and we also have um, a large collection of articles that we wrote about plant science, and we're slowly adding more to them. You'll find that at plantsandpipettes.com. Thank you for listening. Our opening music caravana is uh, our opening and closing music. <laughs> our opening and closing caravana is music by Philip Gross. Thank you and goodbye. Opening and closing music is Caravana by Philip Cross. Thank you and goodbye. Bye. <laughs>